Hi guys, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield, and today's episode has been a long time coming. I have been wanting to bring on Lily Nichols to the podcast for months now, and to finally be able to interview her and share all of her prenatal wisdom with you guys is such a dream. Lily is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, and author of two amazing prenatal books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and Lily is also a mother herself. Lily is the prenatal nutrition guru and the go-to source for what to eat during pregnancy, how to prepare your body for pregnancy, and in this episode, we touch on a variety of topics, including what to eat from the moment you're trying to conceive, how to handle first trimester nausea, weight gain during pregnancy, and we debunk a lot of the if you should eat this and can you eat this, is this allowed, and you'll find out if the phrase eating for two is fact or if it is a myth. We'll also learn what to look for in a prenatal vitamin, gestational diabetes, and so much more, so much more. You'll also hear in the episode that I actually had gestational diabetes in my pregnancy with Ezra, which I never really openly spoke about, but we will dive into that in this episode. We'll definitely plan to have Lily back on again to the podcast in a few months to chat about postpartum and breastfeeding nutrition because she has so much to share and I absolutely love, love listening to all of her wisdom. If you guys do enjoy this episode, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share the episode with all of your mama friends or anyone who's trying to conceive and tag Lily and I if you share this episode over on Instagram. And if you have a minute, literally it takes less than a minute, please rate and review the podcast over on iTunes. Tell me your top three favorite episodes, when you usually listen, anything that you think that we should know. And if you have any dream guests, please message me over on Instagram. I would love to hear any topics or guests that you guys want to listen to. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Megafood. As you guys heard in my episode over with Lisa Hyam, which was a couple weeks ago, Megafood and I go way back and they have absolutely everything we need for immune health this season. Right now, I'm personally focusing on boosting my immune system and loading up on as many products as I can to keep me, my baby, and my family healthy. Megafood offers so many immune-supported vitamins and supplements, and also if tablets aren't really your thing, they even have gummies and powders, but really, as you guys know, I've been eating the C-Defense gummies every single day now, and I am obsessed. They have this like tangy orange flavor, and they're filled with vitamin C, farm fresh oranges, cranberries, blueberries, ginger root, and they just so happen to be vegan and non-GMO. I also just stocked up on their vitamin D3 supplement, which also comes in gummies too, and the daily immune support tablet, which is great because you can take it once a day and it has vitamin C, vitamin D3, and zinc. Vitamin D3 is definitely getting a lot of buzz right now, and for good reason. It is something that I am personally really, really focusing on taking, And if you want to hear more on that, head on over to the episode with Dr. Frank Littman and he gives us the full rundown. All of Megafood's products are non-GMO, tested for more than 125 herbicides and pesticides, and they are all gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan, vegetarian, and soy-free, something that is really rare in vitamins and supplements, believe it or not. A lot of brands really sneak soy in, which drives me absolutely crazy. 
If you want to order anything from MegaFood, you can use the code RACHEL, R-A-C-H-L, for 15% off your first order. And I'm linking to everything over in the show notes. Head on over to megafood.com and use the code RACHEL and stock up on all of your immunity supplements and more. I am so excited, Lily, to have you on. You have been on my like dream podcast guest list for quite some time. And when I first had launched the podcast, I was a little less than a year postpartum. And I always try and like make each episode like not relevant to like things that I'm personally going through, but I knew that hopefully down the road I'd be pregnant myself again. And I'm like, that would be the best time to bring her on to chat all of the things, pregnancy and trying to conceive and postpartum. And when I shared that you were coming on, we had a list of such amazing questions and I can't wait for you to share all of them. Yay. Well, happy to be here. So thank you. Yeah. I'd love to start just by having you um, share with us more about what you do and kind of like what your specialty is within the nutrition space. Sure. So my background professionally is as a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a certified diabetes educator. And I have been working in the prenatal space for actually most of my career as a dietitian. So I've kind of jumped around from many different areas from like the public policy level with the state of California on gestational diabetes work to clinical work. Um, A lot of that was with gestational diabetes, but also preeclampsia, normal, uncomplicated pregnancies and everything in between, um, as well as research and consulting and training other professionals on prenatal and gestational diabetes nutrition. So it was really in all of those roles, but probably most particularly highlighted in my clinical work where you're actually applying guidelines into clinical practice and then watching outcomes and getting feedback and and seeing exactly what's happening with the person in front of you, that everything sort of started coming together for me where I was like, okay, the guidelines don't work very well in practice and we can do a lot better with prenatal nutrition. So that sort of forced me to put the research hat back on Um, a little more deeply and delve into how we can actually improve the guidelines. What does the evidence say about the, you know, RDAs for various micronutrients? If you are applying the macronutrient guidelines, you know, fat, carbon, protein percentages, do you actually meet the micronutrient needs without fortification or excessive supplementation? You know, like how can we reverse engineer prenatal nutrition, basically. So that has led to my two books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and then now Real Food for Pregnancy as well. And I'm just, you know, trying to get the word out. I think it's a grassroots sort of thing where you have mama's firsthand experience the difference between, you know, not really paying much attention to pregnancy nutrition, or maybe trying to apply all the guidelines and strict foods to avoid lists and all that stuff to their pregnancy versus having a real food focused pregnancy and just experiencing the difference in how they feel during pregnancy, what their pregnancy outcomes are, birth outcomes, postpartum outcomes, um, breastfeeding experience. All of that is affected by food and nutrition. So that's really the focus of my work these days. 
No, I love that. It's so special. A lot of my friends that are in school right now for nutrition and to be in RD, like, I don't know what to specialize in, what to do. And I'm like, honestly, as someone who just had a baby and like trying to conceive and all these things, I was so clueless. I just feel like there's such limited resources and, you know, your doctors are there and they can only do so much. I'm like, I feel like women are just so clueless in so many ways. Like I was just saying that um, they don't know what to do and there's really no guidelines. And I feel like it's such a myth, you know, you're pregnant, you eat for two, eat whatever you want and blah, blah, blah. And I personally didn't experience something like that with my pregnancy with my son Ezra. And I just think that's such like an old myth, like something like your mom would tell you to do, like eat whatever you want, like have a box of Entenmann's donuts. I'd love to start kind of like pre-pregnancy, but when you're trying to conceive and more about like why the nutrition at that time is also like just as important as when you are pregnant and kind of what you, what you should be eating and fueling on. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that a lot of health professionals who work in the pregnancy space wish was something on people's mind before they got pregnant because about 50% or so of pregnancies um, supposedly are unplanned. And we know that preconception nutrition really sets the stage for a healthy pregnancy for a number of reasons. So first of all, you have a greater demand of micronutrients for fetal development and supporting all of the crazy physiological changes your body goes through during pregnancy, like your vascular system has to adapt, your uterus and skin and everything has to expand, your joints change, your uterus grows. I mean, so much is going on that if you don't have a solid base of nutrient stores, you can run into some issues there. So that's one, one part of it, building up nutrient stores preconception. Um, another part of it is that you can actually influence egg quality preconception. So in the couple months leading up to pregnancy, you actually can influence the quality of that egg and that can determine whether or not the pregnancy in fact is viable. So that, you know, that has big implications. Yeah. And then I'd say probably one of the final things that's more important is your actual experience and enjoyment of the pregnancy ahead. You know, as, as a mom now, how deeply depleting <laughs> pregnancy and postpartum <laughs> can be on your body. I, yeah. I, like, I don't want to make people scared, but it is you don't realize until after the fact and often many months after pregnancy, like, wow, I like that was such an energetic and nutritional transfer that went on to grow this human yeah. being from scratch. And you can actually, if you're building up your stores pre-pregnancy and can go through pregnancy, I mean, maybe minus the first trimester with relatively well-balanced nutrition and a solid intake of micronutrients and then continue that postpartum, your postpartum experience can also be completely different. So it's also just about long-term quality of life for you as a future mother, where I think that's probably the thing that gets the least attention of all. It's all about baby and preventing neural tube defects. And these things all matter, yes, but it's also about like your life long-term as a mother surviving toddlerhood and sleepless nights and all the stuff that lies ahead. 
Yeah, no one real. I mean, people always say like rest before the baby comes, you're never going to sleep again. And I never really believed those things. Like I didn't rest at all before Ezra came. And now I'm 16 weeks pregnant. And anytime that I have the chance to lay horizontally for many minutes, I'm like, sayonara. I don't care. I don't care if I don't work out today. (laughs) Like I need to lay down. Yeah, it's really exhausting, especially first trimester, early second trimester. It's it's a lot of work on your body. And it you don't realize how much you actually rested during your first pregnancy until you're in your second pregnancy and you can't sit down because you have a toddler to look after. It's like <laughs> Yeah, that's where I take all advantage of my husband. I'm like, I'm exhausted. Now it's a blessing, blessing and a curse having the whole family home obviously during a pandemic. I'm like, well you're home, like you can watch him now so I can like relax for a few minutes. Like mm-hmm. we're both working like here. So when you are trying to conceive, are there like any like must have foods or things that you kind of swear by that can help boost like egg quality or anything for women? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. So some of the biggest ones that come to mind are the nutrients that are involved in like the very early cell replication and development, all that like you have massive amount of like multiplying cells and things going on when you're like building a human and growing organs and building blood vessels and bones and all all of this stuff happening like very, very early on, Um, you know, in the first eight weeks of pregnancy, all of the basic structures of the internal organs are formed. And that's really where things tend to go very wrong and result in, in something like a miscarriage, which, you know, unfortunately is very common and not always within your control. But if there's any part of it that could be within your control, Focusing on preconception nutrient intake is is one of them. So some of the nutrients that are really involved in those uh, early stages would be um, your your methylating nutrients. So these are things like folate, choline, vitamin B12, vitamin B6, um, riboflavin is also involved. There's a whole slew of trace minerals you could mention, and um, glycine, an amino acid that you find in high amounts in gelatin and collagen rich foods. And so when I'm thinking about those nutrients, we'll take folate as an example. That's the one that gets probably the most airtime, right? Everyone's like, take your folic acid supplement preconception. And we can talk about different kinds of um, folate and folate versus folic acid if you want. But when we're talking about food sources of folate to build up your nutrient stores of, of that, you're looking at your leafy greens, liver, legumes, avocado, really some nuts and seeds as well, I'll say, but really the highest source actually is liver, like by far, way more than leafy greens, which is actually really surprising. I'm working on an in-depth blog post on folate right now, and I'm going to have like, you know, a list of all of the foods naturally richest in folate um, and not not the fortified ones, but the actual food folate and liver is like way above and beyond the other ones on that list. So what's the best way to eat liver? Like I, I'm Jewish. Like I just think of having like chopped liver on a holiday. Like how do you consume? Yep. And you, you could do that. A lot of people did not grow up eating liver. I didn't really grow up eating much liver. So it is something that was initially really off-putting to me. But when you look at what other cultures consume in preparation for pregnancy and during pregnancy, you often see organ meats as part of the diet. I mean, prior to us 
in our weird, messed up, globalized food system that's all compartmentalized and separating all the parts from the whole and repackaging it into processed foods, when you harvested an animal, you ate nose to tail. And you would also eat the organs, of course. And the organs turn out to be much more nutrient dense, meaning their concentrations of micronutrients, like things like folate, choline, vitamin B12, iron, zinc, are many times higher than what's in like a steak or a chicken breast. So for example, liver has 200 times more vitamin B12 ounce per ounce compared to um, chicken breast. So they're very nutrient dense. So liver actually checks all the boxes of all the micronutrients that are important to egg quality and, and building up preconception nutrient reserves. So that's why I'm going to mention it first, even though probably everybody who's tuning into this podcast is like, Oh God. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I've heard it before. So it's good to keep hearing it. It makes you yeah. it anyways. So the way that I hide it in things, because I'm not somebody who really enjoys just like sitting down to a meal of liver and onions or something. <laughs> Although I will say, if you're, if you're just starting and trying to eat liver, chicken liver or any kind of liver from a small animal has the mildest flavor and a mild texture and is not super off-putting. I think like beef liver is a little more intense um, in terms of flavor and a little tougher in texture and it's a little hard to, to sneak it into things. So the way that I like to sneak it in as I will make a big batch of liver pate a couple times a year. I will, and that's like liver, onions, um, spices, of course, salt, some butter, some cream. You make it really good, like the French would make it. And then um, I freeze it into individual containers in about three or four ounces. And then I'll add one, like it's like an ice cube of liver pate into about a pound of ground beef or ground meat, whatever kind of ground meat you're using. And cook with plenty of spices too, because liver does have kind of a strong, it's really rich in minerals, especially iron. So it will have kind of an irony aftertaste. And I think that's what most people don't like about it. But that way you can hide it into things. And so if I'm making, and I have recipes in Real Food for Pregnancy that do this. So I have uh, like a meatloaf that everyone loves, uh, meatballs, chili, um, I have like an Indian spice stuffed bell pepper recipe, anything that has a lot of spices in it, yeah. um, especially in something kind of tomato-y or acidic that really helps kind of like dampen the liver flavor that some people really, it's like a really strong flavor for some people and other people, they think it just adds to the flavor of it. I mean, now that we're used to eating this way, when I make our meatloaf, which has hidden liver in it, if we make it without the pate, my husband and I will be like, this just kind of tastes like bland or like almost anemic, you know, so you get <laughs> used to it. Um, and and that, that is by and large the best way to do it. And if you're really new to it, you could just start with a tiny bit, you know, two ounces of liver per pound of ground meat and see if you can get away with that. You, it's not really a food you need to eat in huge quantities. It's something that even if you're having, you know, a couple ounces a week or even a couple ounces every other week, it's a huge boost to your nutrient intake and the nutrients are very, very bioavailable from it as well. Okay. I have to try it. You're like motivating me to start eating it and not just on Jewish holidays. Um, so you find out that you're pregnant. It's the first trimester with Ezra. The first trimester was 
very easy for me. The whole pregnancy, I felt the same. My food, I didn't have any weird cravings, nothing. Second pregnancy, I like ate shit first, first trimester. I couldn't get out of bed till like nine o'clock in the morning. I had, my taste buds were so off. All I wanted was like bagels and bread and pizza and really no vegetables. Um, and now I personally didn't throw up at all. I just felt nauseous and just almost felt like hungover. Like the, didn't have the pleasure of going out and having a great night the night before I just woke up feeling so shitty. What do you recommend for, for morning sickness and for nausea? And like when you are craving all of those like carbs and really not as much protein and not really no other nutrients, like what do you recommend doing during that time? Well, to make a throwback to what we were talking about with preconception planning and liver, if your nutrient stores are pretty well built up pre-pregnancy, you can take a deep breath and feel a little bit at peace that at least you have your nutrient stores to rely on during the nausea phase. Um, I, I experienced similar to you where I didn't really throw up very often, but I just have these kind of like waves of queasiness and nothing sounded yeah. good. And just like, I could only, I was like eating like a bird, just nibbling on little things here and there. And, you know, nausea is super common. It's like 90% plus of pregnancies are affected by nausea and also the fatigue and exhaustion that also comes with the first trimester. And, you know, it, it's tricky because on one hand, you want to be doing everything possible to be eating super nutritious and you feel this deep pressure to like eat super well because you have a baby growing and oh my God, now I know all this stuff about nutrition and now I'm not doing any of it. And you just have to trust that your body can handle it. I mean, if, if eating not optimally was really so detrimental in the first couple months of pregnancy, I mean people wouldn't be carrying pregnancies to term and it's clearly not the case, right? So many of us have healthy kids and we had a kind of rough first trimester. So first, just take heart that it's normal. It's mostly hormonal and it does pass or at the very least, it usually lessens if you're, even if you're in the unlucky group that kind of feels nauseous and queasy for most of the pregnancy, at least it tends to lessen over time. There's a lot of things that you can do to help mitigate it. And I want to say mitigate rather than fix it, because I know firsthand I was kind of of the expectation, like, well, I've been eating well for so long, and so I'm going to have an easy first trimester. I'm not going to have any nausea because I'll just, you know, supplement with my B6 and take my magnesium and take my ginger, and then everything will be fine, right? <laughs> and those things do help, and they do tend to lessen the nausea, but they won't necessarily make it go away entirely. Those will just kind of help you get through the day. It helps you kind of ride the waves of, of the queasiness. Same goes for things like balancing your blood sugar. You know, protein sometimes sounds like the least appealing thing in the first trimester, very common to have protein aversions. So you have to get creative with what kind of protein foods are going to be tolerable. For a lot of people, it ends up being more like nuts and seeds. I know cashews were good. Salted cashews paired with a sweet and sour um, dried cherry were something that was helpful to me. It's like somehow sweet and sour and salty combos usually work, but you also want to be thinking 
blood sugar balance. Because if you have super blood sugar highs and lows, oftentimes that'll make the nausea come on stronger when your blood sugar hits a low again. Dairy products. I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about dairy and even people who weren't really big dairy eaters pre-pregnancy often find themselves drawn to eating more dairy during pregnancy. I know that was the case for myself. And so Greek yogurt or cottage cheese or just cheese itself was a tolerable protein for me early on. Um, Sometimes it was a scrambled egg and normally I'm not a scrambled egg person, but and I do over easy, but first trimester scrambled eggs with like cheese and salsa, that was a tolerable way for me to get some protein in. And I noticed that the days where I didn't really make an effort to just get some protein, even if it wasn't a lot, but if I didn't make the effort to just get a little bit, I'd be on a crazy blood sugar roller coaster and my nausea would be way worse. So a lot of these things are just about sort of like mitigating the severity of the symptoms, but they don't necessarily make it go away entirely. And you're not doing anything wrong if it doesn't go away entirely. A lot of it is about waiting it out, (laughs) waiting for it to pass. I've heard, and it might've even been from you when I listened to you on other podcasts that isn't it a good thing, like a good sign if you're feeling nauseous? So Um, they have, yeah. So they have found in research that um, nausea is correlated with a higher probability that the pregnancy is viable. Whereas people who experience no nausea, sometimes in those people, um, it ends up that it was not a viable pregnancy. And the reason they weren't experiencing the nausea is that their hormonal shift um, that happens in early pregnancy wasn't happening. So typically you have a big surge in HCG, which kind of hijacks your thyroid gland and influences the production of thyroid hormones, which are designed to go way, way up in early pregnancy. And there's some theories, and all of these are theories still, but there are some theories that nausea is actually a sign that your body is correctly hijacking your thyroid to drive up thyroid hormone levels to shunt iodine to the very um, early developing embryo and positively influence brain development. So there are some theories that it is a good thing. Although I will say for anyone who's listening and doesn't have nausea, don't freak out because there's plenty of viable pregnancies and people who don't um, have nausea. For those of us who do experience it, it's sort of in a way it can, if you look at it on the flip side of like feeling awful all day, there is this little thing in the back of your mind that's like reassuring you that you have a viable pregnancy because if the pregnancy wasn't viable, maybe you wouldn't have any of these symptoms, right? So yeah, it's a silver lining. If any positive, that might be it. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I didn't have it with Ez, and I remember listening to you say that, like, oh wow, that actually, like, you know, it's like this gave me comfort during the last few weeks of of my first trimester. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say the thing about protein because when I, during that, during the first time I saw I craved a lot of grass fed burgers. I ate a lot of like good, like meat sticks and random things. All I wanted was like protein and with carbs and mm. I'm not a big dairy person. And the thought I was having yogurt and like for breakfast, like making like yogurt bowls for breakfast when I was trying to conceive because I'm not a big dairy person in general randomly in April, May, I started craving it. And I was like, this is so weird. And I'm convinced eating dairy helped me conceive easier. Mm. Um, Like having like the calcium, again, you would know that more than I would, but 
it was so weird. And the second I was pregnant, I was like, I don't, I can't do this anymore. Like the, even now the still the thought of having regular yogurt just doesn't, doesn't it's like repulsive now. Isn't that funny how sometimes it flip flops. So interesting. So interesting. Even just aversions in general during pregnancy. Like with, with this yeah. one, I, I'm a big dark chocolate fiend. Like I love dark chocolate. Usually it's Hugh kitchens, like cashew butter, dark chocolate. I can't eat dark chocolate. Like I can eat a peanut butter cup or I can eat like chocolate covered nuts, but I can't eat like plain dark chocolate, like a bar, which was so interesting how the, like just what my body's interested in just really, really changes. It's fascinating how it flip flops. I mean, I have to think on some level, people always ask me if cravings or aversions serve a purpose. And I think in some cases they do some cases, it's just who knows what's going on. But I've observed some interesting patterns in practice where I've had people who have been following more of a paleo diet pre-pregnancy, so lots of animal protein and vegetables, and those are the foods they're averse to in the first trimester, versus I've had some clients who were vegan or vegetarian previously, and those are often the ones who are having really intense cravings for meat and animal foods in the first trimester. And it's like, is your body trying to sort of make up the difference between what it's missing? I mean, who knows? Um, That is one of the theories out there though. That actually makes a lot of sense because I'm not a big salt person. Like I I didn't grow up with my mom putting salt in my food. So everything to me tastes so salty. All I want is salt in this pregnancy, Mm. like jerky, pickles, like kimchi, everything that's like, like salty pretzels and crackers, all I want is salt, Um, which is just so, so, so funny. Now, when you are pregnant and you know that we were just saying, I said before about the eating for two thing, what actually is like, and I don't want to say like ideal day of eating, but like a typical day of eating when you're in your first or second or third, like whichever trimester, we can even break it down if that's easier. Um, like, do you really need to be eating like X amount more calories a day? Like, how does that really work? How does that really play out? Yeah. So the guidelines are generally telling us that calorie needs go up anywhere between 300 to 500 calories a day during pregnancy. And that's toward the latter stages of pregnancy. It's generally assumed that first trimester energy requirements are no different than outside of pregnancy. There, and I, I generally use those as, as a ballpark. I, I happen to just choose the, the 300 calorie one and just aim for about 300 calories extra for, you know, second and third trimester, but primarily having it go off of your hunger because your energy requirements are probably in flux on a daily basis, just like they always are. But there has been some research that's questioned whether it's even wise to recommend that because they have found that some people actually reduce their energy expenditure via like physical activity during pregnancy. And I know that was the case for me. I just was sure I was active, but especially in the first trimester when you're super tired, it's like, no, I'm not working out as much. And that may actually reduce the energy expenditure to as little as 70 extra calories per day. So it really is going to vary person to person. What does increase is the micronutrient requirements. And that is known and well-documented in my opinion. So 
Some re researchers have said that um, instead of eating for two, we should say eating for 1.1. <laughs> so it implies that you're eating just a little bit extra energy, but eating, make, paying more attention to the quality of foods that you're eating. So any place that you can replace something that's not very nutrient dense. And for all intents and purposes, we're talking about things with added sugar or things made with white flour, <laughs> like refi refined grains and sugars are usually the primary source of quote, empty calories in the diet. And as much as you can replace those with actual food, you're doing well. Okay. Um, now that actually brings me to one of the most commonly asked questions from my readers was about the number of pounds you should gain while being pregnant. And I'm also asked a lot, how much weight did you gain with Ezra? How much weight have you gained now? And it's just not some, I, I'm not comfortable talking about things like that just because I know everyone's body is so different, whether you're pregnant or not, everyone's body is so different, but especially during a time like this, I actually received a message yesterday and it got like, it was like a couple, few of them were coming through over the last like couple of weeks and they just really started to take me off. And people were like, you look how I look after I eat pizza or you look how I look after I had Thanksgiving dinner. And I'm like, don't, I know you don't mean actual harm in what you're saying, but like you're comparing yeah. my child to food and this is just my body. Like I can't help how I'm carrying or how my weight's distributed yep. as much as you can't help being bloated after you have dinner. So what is like the norm? I don't even like saying norm or normal, but like what is yeah. a range of weight gain during pregnancy that women, you know, I guess the most common number of pounds someone gains. Yeah. And I feel you, my friend, because there's something weird about being pregnant in the era of social media where everybody feels like they can comment on you. I actually wrote a post in my first pregnancy called My Pregnant Body is None of Your Business. And I reread that post during my second pregnancy and was like, damn, that's spot on. <laughs> it's just, I wrote something like that too. It was like, back yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, just, do, just don't comment. Just, yeah. If you're not going to say you look glowing and beautiful, just don't comment because it's, it's not helpful. So aside from that and society's weird, like they, people would never comment or wouldn't comment as frequently on your body when you're not pregnant. But when you're pregnant, it feels like gates are open, free reign, say whatever you want. And it's, it's very strange. So to the weight gain question, the, there are general guidelines for weight gain um, that the Institute of Medicine puts out. And actually different countries have different guidelines on weight gain, but for what the US recommends, they break it down into BMI categories and then suggest a range of weight gain for what's considered quote healthy. Um, because we do know that there's naturally going to be a shift in weight for the majority of people um, during pregnancy. And that's to account for the growth of not only the baby, but the amniotic fluid and additional fluid that you have in your bloodstream. So there's a huge increase in fluid volume in your body. Your um, uterus grows, your breasts grow. You put on some fat as well, which your body is going to pull from um, during the end of pregnancy. It does a lot of fat transfer to baby, but also postpartum in your breast milk. What else am I missing? The placenta? I don't know. There's a lot of things that shift. Um, so some weight change or redistribution of weight even um, is very normal and expected in pregnancy 
for people whose BMI, and BMI is not a perfect measure of weight or health or, or all of that, but it is what helps delineate sort of these general ranges. So I'm going to mention them. For people who fall in the quote healthy BMI range, the amount of weight they recommend is about 25 to 35 pounds. And there's been studies that have looked at, and then of course, if you're underweight or overweight or in the, what they call obese category, which is a BMI over 30, there's sometimes, there's different weight gain ranges. So more if you're underweight, less if you're overweight. There have been some studies recently that have pulled into question whether those ranges are actually accurate. And they've found that the 25 to 35 pound goalpost is generally good, on point for healthy pregnancy outcomes. They have found that for some people in the underweight category, which I believe that recommended weight gain is 28 to 40 pounds, that sometimes that's an underestimate. And some people might need upwards of 50 pounds or more weight gain. Whereas if you go into the BMI over 30 or especially BMI over 40 range, some people benefit not from weight gain, but actually from weight maintenance over the course of pregnancy or even weight loss over the course of pregnancy. And as somebody who's worked with a lot of people with gestational diabetes, I've definitely seen that firsthand. Sometimes you're working with somebody where, you know, you just get, get the diet coming from more nutrient-dense foods, less um, processed carbohydrates, and their caloric intake because their hunger and cravings are better managed on real food. Um, their caloric intake and everything is probably lower than what they were doing previously, sometimes they experience just weight redistribution over the course of pregnancy and they don't end up gaining a whole lot of extra and sometimes lose and have really great pregnancy outcomes. But for somebody who's starting their pregnancy at a low weight, that wouldn't be healthy. <laughs> you know, you do need to gain weight if you, if you don't have a lot of, um, you know, energy stored in your body already that could be redistributed over the course of pregnancy. So it's a nuanced conversation because, you know, first of all, you pull into like all of these differences of opinion on body size, the accuracy of BMI, blah, blah, blah. A lot of emotional eating issues often rear their head or reoccur in pregnancy. Um, and then we kind of have to balance that with what we get from the research. What I can say though, is that I, I feel like people want to place so much emphasis on a number on the scale and the number on the scale doesn't define your health. It is, you know, the amount of weight that you need to gain is different for every person. I know some people who naturally every pregnancy gain 40 pounds, you know, that is what their body wants to gain. I know some people who every pregnancy gain about 15 pounds. And then there are some cases where people will be like, you know, I had one pregnancy where I wasn't paying much attention to my nutrition. I ate for two, I ate whatever I wanted. I gained 60 pounds. And then my next pregnancy, I was eating more real food and that pregnancy I gained 25, right? So sometimes it's your body's going to do what it's going to do. And then there's other times where weight might be a reflection of the quality of food that you're eating. And it's really hard to generalize that because it's just different for everybody. A hundred percent. Do you think that it's concerning for someone who doesn't gain a lot of weight during pregnancy, even if their doctor says like everything looks fine, like the baby looks healthy, like your levels are okay. 
is it ever like of concern if you're not gaining too much weight? I think if all signs are pointing to your pregnancy progressing normally and baby's measuring fine, your fungal yeah. height is fine and all that, I wouldn't be too concerned. It really, it's, it's hard to like give a, a, a hard, hard and fast rule on this because so yeah. much of it depends on so many different factors. I mean, the concern with gaining too little weight would be, um, low nutrient intake potentially leading to low growth in the baby, like intrauterine oh, okay. growth restriction is what they call it. So that that's the major concern, but you can, you can measure for that. You can check for that via ultrasound and fungal yeah. height and other things. Um, there are some people who just have smaller babies and some people have bigger babies. Um, I happen to gain within the weight gain guidelines, I never give the exact amount either within or at like kind of the lower end of the guidelines. And my babies were eight pounds, two ounces and eight pounds. Those oh, wow. are just, that's just the size of my babies. And I definitely did not, I mean, that's still within normal, but that's yeah. like the solid baby. times my providers were surprised that I had eight pound babies. <laughs> I'll put it yeah. that way. So sometimes, you know, your babies are going to come out, whatever size they're going to come out. But um, there is a concern that if there's undernutrition present um, and under eating and not getting enough calories, not getting enough essential nutrients, maybe baby also won't be um, growing appropriately. Okay. So, because I'm, I'm almost like selfishly asking that question because I remember last time leaving, last pregnancy, leaving the doctor. It's funny, this pregnancy, they don't really like have you come as much as with COVID and stuff. They like oh, really yeah. try and space your appointments. And I remember always leaving the doctor. And of course, I had to call my mom, tell her like everything that was going on. And she'd be like, did she say anything about your weight? And I would just say, no, like she didn't say anything because the baby's growing. Like he looks fine, yeah. like in the ultrasound. So there's nothing to be concerned about. And she was just always obviously wondering out of like love and, and just concern. But she's like, I just don't understand you eat so much. Like, why aren't you gaining weight? Like I gained 40 plus pounds when I was pregnant. I'm like, I don't know. It's just, just some bodies are just so, so, so different. But I'm even noticing like a similar trajectory to this pregnancy as I had with Ezra, which I'm carrying another boy too, which I don't know if that's just an old wives tale in my head that I just feel the same now that the first trimester is over in my body. It's crazy. Like looks exactly the same as it did when I carried Ezra, like the weights in the same, all the weights in the oh, same. Fascinating. It's interesting that you said the weight distribution, it could like change because I always thought I was mental in thinking that. And I always told my husband, I'm like, I just think that all of my weight goes to my stomach when I'm pregnant. That's, That's just how it is for me. Yeah, I'm so happy you said that because you made my weird theory in my head actually. If you're saying it, then I know it's factual and I know it's true. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it really, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I felt like um, I felt like I people would always think I was further along in pregnancy. I think because the weight would redistribute to my belly and it's just sort of genetically the women in my family don't put on a lot of weight in their hips and thighs. And so it's like my belly looked disproportionately larger. <laughs> but I have other friends who gain more weight in their hips and thighs in pregnancy and less and more in their breasts and less so in their belly. So they look a little more evenly distributed. <laughs> so, I mean, we all carry differently. I've had friends who are um, really short 
And so they carry, they, it appears like they're much further along than they are because their torso just doesn't have as much space for the baby to expand vertically and it just sticks out so much more, right? And so they're on the receiving end of some annoying comments. Oh man, my poor friend was like five foot or five one. And I remember she was getting her nails done once and the man, the person doing her manicure said, are you sure you're not having twins? And she was like, no, this is my first pregnancy. I'm pretty sure the doctor would have told me if I was having twins. I was thinking of like pulling everyone's crazy body image stories that I've heard and like compiling them all because I feel like everyone oh, yeah. would benefit from like hearing them from one another. It's crazy. And, and to play devil's advocate, I've had some friends who carry small and with all the comments of people saying, oh my gosh, you don't even look pregnant. Oh, you're so tiny. Um, it makes them fear that something's wrong. Yes. And, or maybe they had a high risk pregnancy previously where there was something like intrauterine growth restriction, or there was a pregnancy loss and that triggers a whole bunch of anxiety in them. I really feel like the best, even though people mean well, the, the best thing you can say is just, oh, you look glowing. You look wonderful. How are you feeling? Or just exactly. say nothing. <laughs> Even just say, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Like, how's yeah. your day? Like, it's like, it's so funny you say that because every time someone says that to me, I'm like, maybe something's wrong. And I'm not really a hypochondriac with probably, like, knock on wood. I'm pretty like, everything's okay until I'm told otherwise. And yeah. every time someone says something, we're like, oh my God, I wonder if there's something wrong. Like, maybe I'm not, like, maybe this. And I'm like, no, people are just assholes. Like, that is what's going on. They make unnecessary comments. I know, I know, I'm interrupting the juicy combo right now, but I can't not tell you guys about one of my favorite plant-based snacks that are an absolute staple in our pantry, Siren Snacks. Siren Snacks was started by two sisters who wanted to create a snack that was friendly from one of their autoimmune conditions, but also still tasted delicious. Siren Snacks comes in bite-sized forms and one whole bag is a serving size, which is like, that's my kind of snack, so I can... You know, I'm not really good at the whole portion control thing at times, so if I can open bag and just eat it, not have to think about it, perfect. You can eat them as is, you can snack on them on the go, you can put them in yogurt bowls on top of a smoothie bowl or smoothie, anything you want. They come in a few different flavors like dark chocolate brownie, lemon poppy seed, birthday cake cookie dough, and snickerdoodle. I remember the first day I tried Siren Snacks a few years ago, I literally ate five bags in one day because I was so excited about every single flavor that they have and they are just to die for. All of their products are vegan, non-GMO verified, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. They've also expanded beyond protein bites, and they offer a line of organic energy bites with flavors like mocha chip and matcha latte, and they have some CBD like relaxation ones, which I highly recommend. You can find Siren Snacks in retailers like Target, CVS, I literally just saw them there yesterday actually, and select Whole Foods, or you can order them online for 15% off with my code RACHEL. Now back to today's episode. Now, I want to talk about something that I personally had gone through and I know a lot of my readers too because I wrote a blog post on it with Ezra's pregnancy. Pooping while pregnant. The second trimester digestion really slowed down for me last time. What the heck do you do? Like I'm someone who has a very regular cycle. I go every single morning, knock on wood. What can you do to like alleviate constipation while pregnant? Yeah, great question. And um, some people experience this very noticeably and other people it's not super noticeable. noticeable. But um, in generally speaking, your digestion does start to slow down a little bit in pregnancy. And, and that 
does serve a purpose. The goal really is so that your body can extract as much nutrition from your food as possible. But also as the baby grows and your uterus expands and all of your digestive organs get kind of pushed up into your lungs, it's just harder for food to move through. Everything just feels very crammed <laughs> in your torso. Uh, so a couple things that you can do, um, definitely be thinking about your fluid intake. General rule is to aim for about 100 ounces per day if possible. Be conscious of your fiber intake as well. So the fluids and fiber should go hand in hand. Um, you do need a little more fiber when you're pregnant. So I tend to like to focus on, I think when a lot of people go for fiber, they go for like ground flax seeds or psyllium, like they go for a fiber supplement sort of, um, or they go for increasing their intake of whole grains, for example. And if you're looking at brown rice, just as an example, about a cup of cooked brown rice has a couple grams of fiber. It's really yeah. not that much. It's, it's, so we have to kind of have a fine balance. I think people do better when they get um, a lot of fiber from vegetables, from the types of berries that have seeds in them, like blackberries, raspberries. So if you're doing like a smoothie or something, um, you could throw some frozen raspberries in there and that'll give you a fiber boost. I find that chia seeds tend to work really well. And I've found with clients, they tend to be less constipating for people than flax. I don't know what it is about flax, but some people have the opposite effect on flax where it makes them more constipated. Um, whereas chia seeds, they make more of a gel um, than flax seeds. They seem to work better at keeping things moving. So you could put some chia seeds in your smoothie, of course, with adequate amounts of uh, fluid in there as well. And then um, another consideration would be your salt intake and also your fat intake. And I think both of these surprise people because everyone just kind of gets stuck on the fluids and fiber part of the conversation. But your fluid needs, as they increase in pregnancy, your electrolyte needs increase right alongside them. And this is something that I really believe needs to change in our, our guidelines for prenatal nutrition because they don't really talk much about electrolytes and they still try to push you to eat low salt. But you need more salt when you're pregnant, especially in the later stages of pregnancy um, when your fluid volume has really expanded so much. And that'll help with fluid balance across your whole body, including what's in your gut. Um, so eat adequate salt, salt your food to taste. If you're having cravings for olives and cheese and sauerkraut and kimchi and all sorts of salty things, eat it. Um, it will likely help. Um, no, it does not lead to preeclampsia. That's a myth. I have a huge section on that in chapter seven of real food for pregnancy. It's too much detail to get into here. And then the last thing I'll say is the fat. So fat is really helpful for digestion. Um, moving things through your gut sort of lubricates it, so to speak, but it also triggers the release of bile from your gallbladder, which naturally keeps your intestines moving and promotes peristalsis. So don't limit your fat intake. Probably the recipe for constipation would be eating lots of refined grains. So lots of white flour foods that don't have the fiber that they should have in them, um, limiting your salt intake and trying to eat low fat. 
Like if you do those three things, you're going to be constipated. Do the opposite. Okay. What are your thoughts on probiotics for helping constipation? Even probiotics while pregnant, actually. Do you think that it's still helpful to take a... Like I take a daily probiotic every night about like an hour or two after dinner. Yeah. I mean, I think probiotics are generally healthy. That's definitely another thing that can help um, constipation for sure. There's, I mean, there's more things we didn't talk about, like ginger and magnesium and vitamin C and other things. But um, yeah, probiotics are generally pretty healthy. I do encourage people to try to get as much of their probiotics through food. Uh, A supplement is not always necessary. And some of that depends on like your baseline digestive health and your microbiome, history of use of antibiotics or current um, use of antibiotics in pregnancy. Um, If some of those things are going on, you might be more inclined to use a probiotic supplement specifically, but you also might have benefit just from doing fermented foods with the live active cultures still in them. So yogurt and kefir are a good example, Um, kimchi and sauerkraut, if they are naturally fermented and have not been pasteurized, if they've been pasteurized, they've been heat treated and the probiotics are dead. But the stuff that you get at the health food store, in a jar in the fridge, uh, generally, um, if they say raw or unpasteurized, um, those ones would have active cultures in them. Kombucha, like fermented drinks can also um, provide you with probiotics. I know that one's controversial, so we can talk about that if you want. But um, they have found that some pro- probiotic foods can have far more bacteria, good bacteria, beneficial probiotics than what you'd find in a supplement. Like a tablespoon of sauerkraut juice has been found to have upwards of 1 trillion bacteria, CFUs. Yeah. And typically, if you're looking at a probiotic supplement, they're measured in the billions. So a lot of probiotics have like 1 billion probiotics, um, colony forming units per capsule. And you could get a trillion from a tablespoon of sauerkraut juice, right? So yeah. So speaking actually of raw and unpasteurized, like kimchi and products in general, I know a lot of the time you're told kind of not to eat a lot of things when pregnant, like runny eggs and not to drink kombucha. And what are some of those myths of things that you're quote, not supposed to eat, but it really is okay for you in most instances to still have them? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I'm thinking about what foods could be potentially risky, and these are all the reasons you're bringing up are are food safety concerns, right? Could be contaminated with bacteria or something that would give you food poisoning and that can be more serious in pregnancy. When I'm looking at those foods, I'm, I'm looking at what is the relative risk of actually getting sick from eating said thing? Is it really all that common that you're going to get sick? Um, But also what would be the nutritional trade-off if I were to not eat that food? So An example of one of the ones that I disagree with that's on the list would be eggs with runny yolks. Everyone tells you not to do that because eggs with runny yolks could have salmonella in them and then you could get sick and that's bad, right? What I've seen in practice is that maybe it's like through a game of telephone, but the way that people interpret the don't eat eggs with runny yolks is eggs are unsafe, I'm not going to eat eggs. Or 
you have the person who only likes to eat their eggs over easy. And if that's unsafe, they're not going to eat eggs whatsoever. And in this case, I think this does more harm than good. A, because the risk of actually getting, coming across an egg that contains salmonella, whether or not you actually get sick from it, is one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs. So very, very rare. But the trade-off of not eating eggs whatsoever is you're almost guaranteed to have an inadequate intake of choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound that is we kind of, I think I mentioned it when we talked about preconception, but it's very important for fetal brain development. It's equally important um, as folate for preventing neural tube defects. It's important for the proper function and nutrient transfer from the placenta. It's important for liver health. It's also important for mom's brain health. But we have quite a bit of strong research on choline now. And eggs are, by and large, the main dietary source of choline. They're usually responsible for about half or sometimes more than half of choline that a person eats. So if you're not eating eggs because you're afraid of this one in 12,000 of one in 30,000 chance that the egg will contain salmonella, I think we have a problem. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you just need to make an informed choice. Um, if you really like eggs with runny yolks, um, one thing that can make you feel a little more at peace is that if you purchase your eggs from an organic or pasture-raised oper operation, the likelihood that the egg will contain salmonella is sevenfold lower than those stats I already threw out there. So even more rare. So the higher quality egg from chickens that are raised with adequate amounts of space to run and peck and scratch in the dirt and are, you know, aren't in confinement with the poop of all their other friends, um, they're less likely to get sick with salmonella and pass that into their eggs, right? So healthy chickens make healthier eggs. So that might make you feel at peace. Maybe you're a person who would feel better if the yolk is cooked and that's just fine. You'll still get the same amount of choline. You could do that. Um, but I don't think it's a good excuse to, for food safety reasons to not eat them whatsoever. There's a bunch of other examples I could, I could throw out there if you want me to keep going. But I, I think just the relative, you have to look at the relative risk of actually getting sick from it and then what nutrients it's providing you. But what about kombucha? Like I'm so, I, I love kombucha. I used to be a binge diet soda drinker like 10 years ago. And to me, it's like that bubbly something that like I still like really enjoy having. But I've been having kombucha for over six years so I don't feel like I feel like my body's just so used to it. So I still have it while pregnant. And every time I post, I, it's crazy because like we were saying before, being pregnant on social media is like, it's truly one of the worst things ever, actually. It, but is. it, is. it bonds you in so many ways, but I'm also like, please, everyone stop harassing me for eating something or drinking something you don't think I should be. But I feel like I put like a validation on everything. Like I post- You have to put a disclaimer on everything. <laughs> I get the runny eggs. I wrote, I'm comfortable eating runny eggs. Please do it works. And there's always like an asterisk, like on the bottom, like they're reading a book. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on kombucha in general while pregnant? Like, is it safe to consume? It's okay if the answer is no, even though I just told you I drink it. My, yeah, my take on kombucha is that it's generally safe to consume in pregnancy, at least in moderation, you know, eight to 16 ounces or something a day. Mm -hmm. The concerns with kombucha, I believe, are twofold. So one is that it's an unpasteurized raw food. And oh my God, 
you're going to have some sort of food safety concern. Okay. So people are so disconnected from their food that they don't know how fermented foods have been a part of the human diet since antiquity. And especially before we had refrigeration, this is how you preserved foods. If you've ever made kombucha before, and I used to make kombucha quite frequently, let my scoby die after having kids. Sorry, not sorry, but I just don't (laughs) have the energy to do it. You know if the ferment has gone wrong because you grow mold on top of your scoby. (laughs) So if you haven't grown mold on top, the bacteria that are present in it are lactobacilli and other beneficial microorganisms. You don't have pathogenic microorganisms in a properly fermented food. And I have never once purchased kombucha uh, from any, any major or small microbrew kind of brand that has mold on top. They're all properly fermented to the point that they're acidic enough and contain the beneficial bacteria that they'll crowd out any pathogens. So I really don't think there's much of a food safety risk. I think that's a holdover from super old school dietetics. The second concern is that it can contain trace amounts of alcohol. Now, I guess this could be a concern if you're doing like a homebrew and you let it ferment way too long, which can happen. You can have a bit of extra alcohol in it. But generally, the -the over-the-counter ones or the ones you're buying at a grocery store are regulated to have less than half a percent of alcohol per serving. And that's really nothing. Um, I actually found research that tropical fruit that has like gotten old and is like started fermenting can have far higher percent alcohol (laughs) than kombucha. So if you're going to be scared about kombucha, you better be scared about an overripe mango or an overripe pineapple um, because those will have probably more alcohol than kombucha will. Um, If you're really concerned though, just, I mean, don't drink it and find other ways to get your fermented food or bubbly drink fix. You could just do sparkling water or something like that and have your, you know, other fermented foods, sauerkraut, yogurt, kefir for your probiotics. But if you're comfortable drinking your kombucha, I really, I really don't understand why people have overstated these theoretical risks. It's never been proven to be um, harmful in pregnancy. No, thank you for clarifying that. I wasn't sure if it was like, obviously I knew the raw and unpasteurized, but I know like caffeine sometimes is an intake. Like what do you, or a concern, like what do you think about caffeine intake while pregnant? Yeah, so I do. I mean, I have a section on caffeine in chapter four of Real Food for Pregnancy. All of these like foods to avoid, it's all, it's all covered in there. And the research on caffeine is that we should have less than, and it depends on the guidelines you're going by, two to 300 milligrams per day. I usually just err on the side of caution and do 200 milligrams per day. So if you're looking at tea, like you use usually black tea um, as a base for making kombucha, you're looking at, I think it's about 30 milligrams or so per strongly brewed cup of black tea. Whereas a cup of coffee that's sort of like moderate to strong strength would have 100 milligrams or more of caffeine per eight ounce cup. So it's going to be pretty hard to overdo caffeine just from tea alone. Likewise, if you're a a chocolate eater, you're even super dark chocolate, which would have like the most cacao and thus the highest percent of caffeine. Mm -hmm. um, You're looking at maybe 20 to 30 milligrams per ounce 
of dark chocolate. So unless you're a coffee drinker or you're doing some sort of a um, nutritional supplement or energy drink or something that has added caffeine to it, you're pretty much okay. Um, it's really the coffee drinkers that have to be mindful to limit themselves to either one large slash strong cup of coffee or two um, smaller cups of coffee per day. Okay. Thank you for clarifying all of those. I think that'll be very helpful for everyone. Now, I know your first book was all about gestational diabetes. And I personally have never openly said this on social media before, but I had gestational diabetes in my first pregnancy, which I was very shocked. I remember when the nurse had called me to tell me she didn't look at my file clearly before calling me and which is fine, but I mean, not fine, but fine. And I remember her saying like, we need to slow your weight gain down as the doc, as my mom's telling me, I'm like, I ain't enough weight and I didn't at that point in time and stop eating white bread, stop eating like regular pasta, no more soda. And I remember she being like, listen, whoa, 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 Debbie, that's a nurse's name. Debbie, I don't think you know who you're talking to. Like, I don't consume unrefined carbs. Like I eat a very wholesome diet. Like I, I don't even have that much sugar. It was like literally kombucha and my daily dessert. Like I'm not a big fruit eater. And for me, I, and again, I'm actually going to seek to you for something like this, but when I manage my blood sugar, like I managed my blood sugar, like pricked my finger for a few days, like recorded everything and everything was fine. But the second within my diet and the second I did the test where I had to drink the like fruit punch, sunny delight tasting thing, which honestly tasted really good to me because I used to drink so much soda. I was like, oh my God, this tastes so good. My blood sugar went off the charts and that's how I was diagnosed with the gestational diabetes. But when I was tracking it every day with what I was eating, everything ended up being okay. So what, what do you do in a situation like that? Like, is, was, do you think that what I, as long as what I'm eating and my blood sugar levels are okay, I'm in the clear or are there any other risks on failing the test from taking that drinking the Gatorade thing? Yeah. So what you're describing sounds like, and I can't be sure without knowing a lot more details that maybe you fell into the category of a false positive. which can happen on the glucose tolerance test. So, you know, for people, for people who are especially like on the slimmer side and um, tend to eat a low, either a low carb or a very low refined sugar diet, sometimes the huge dose of sugar that you get in one of those tests is kind of like a shock to your pancreas, like your pancreas is not accustomed to pumping out huge boluses of insulin to cover a 50 to 100 gram intake of sugar eaten without anything else. Um, And so your insulin response will lag a bit. And you may get a false positive. Whereas, and this is why previous guidelines suggested that people eat a minimum of 150 grams of carbohydrates a day for about a week leading up to a glucose tolerance test so that there was like sort of a baseline, like your pancreas is accustomed to covering a decent amount of of carbohydrate intake per day. And if you go back to the medical journals all the way back to the 1960s, they had it documented that if you put people on a low carb diet prior to a glucose tolerance test, you'll get a false positive. You put those same people 
on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet prior to the test and they will pass. The pancreas has been sort of primed. This is if your body is actually well adapted enough and your pancreas has the reserve to produce enough insulin to cover it. Um, so it, you could have fallen into that category. That's yeah. possible. There is a risk of false positives and false negatives on the test. And there's no way of diagnosing gestational diabetes that's perfect. But as to if you do happen to fall into the category where either it was a false positive or you seem to have an unusually high response on the test and then all your other blood, blood sugar readings are picture perfect. Yeah. Um, no, there should be no higher risk to your pregnancy, even though you have, quote, an official diagnosis of gestational diabetes, because the actual risk of GD is from having consistently elevated blood sugar or frequently elevated blood sugar over a long period of time over many months of the pregnancy, not just a single high one day. Because if that were the case, probably everybody who went to a baby shower or anybody who's had a soda or a really large fruit smoothie or a large glass of orange juice would have just terrible pregnancy outcomes because all of us are gonna have some blood sugar highs here and there over the course of pregnancy. So in your case, what I would say is, and I don't know what you're going to do this pregnancy, or if you even, well, do you even want input on what you're going to do with the gestational diabetes yeah. test? Well, as I was going to ask you, it's the next question, because I felt, I felt so sick. So I had to go there first thing in the morning, drink the thing, like on an empty stomach. I remember it was like seven o'clock in the morning. I sat there for like the three hours in the waiting room, like waiting to get like my blood work taken. And when I was leaving, I thought I was going to vomit everywhere. I felt so sick from like the sugar on an empty stomach. And I remember when they called me to tell me you have diabetes, the gestational diabetes, you'll have to come back in a week or two to redo it. I said, absolutely not. Like find another solution for me. I'm almost tempted more just to prick my finger again for a week after every meal and do that instead of taking that test again, which I'm sure my doctor might let me do just because she saw me for my last pregnancy. And as long as everything else looks somewhat similar, but I'm like, that test is inaccurate for me. Like it doesn't, it's a waste of like me feeling sick. It's a waste of my time. And I'm just sitting in your waiting room wanting to projectile vomit on you. Um, any, if I ever had that much sugar, I, you know, it'd be like me eating a big slice of birthday cake for breakfast in the morning. I'd feel sick an hour after that too. Well, I, I mean, I completely relate. I, um, just as a personal anecdote in my first pregnancy and I actually blogged about it on my blog, I wrote two posts, why I drank the glucola and I failed the glucola. Do I have gestational diabetes? Because, um, you know, there's different ways of doing the glucose tolerance test, but many people in the U S do a two-step method where you drink 50 grams of glucose. They test you in an hour. And if you fail yeah. that, they have you come back for the three hour test. And that's a hundred grams of glucose and they test your blood sugar before and for each hour of three hours after the test. And uh, so I, I did, I failed the first glucola, the 50 gram one by a point and felt awful and sick because I don't eat that way. And, and I personally, my choice was to negotiate to uh, get a glucometer and test my blood sugar, you know, fasting and after each meal didn't have a single high reading, even when I was testing out higher carb meals. And that's all on that blog post if people want to read it. Yeah, um, so, you know, I think you have, you have options um, for 
My preferred option for people like yourself who maybe had a false positive in the past or a likely false positive or just felt like crap doing the glucola and you don't want to do it or have any aversion to doing that test whatsoever um, would be to, yeah, monitor your blood sugar at home for about a week or two weeks. You do it fasting. So first thing in the morning before you have breakfast and then after each meal, um, I do recommend an hour, although some clinicians will recommend two hours after the meal. Usually one hour will catch the high better for the majority of people. Um, And you compare that to what are the goal ranges for gestational diabetes. And then I also recommend comparing them to what has been observed in pregnant women who do not have any sort of blood sugar dysregulation. And I have those charts in, I believe it's chapter nine of Real Food for Pregnancy and see where you fall. I mean, the hard thing about doing the home monitoring is that, well, A, it's, it's more work and some people just don't want to do it. You have to prick your finger and all that. But B, sometimes it gives you some mixed results because like I said, I mean, there are some foods that no matter what are going to give people a big blood sugar reading, a big blood sugar spike. Um, I have like a post on my website on a, when I did an experiment with a continuous glucose monitor, it's um, called CGM experiment. And I quote some studies where they gave participants, they weren't pregnant, but they gave participants with and without diabetes, with and without prediabetes, a meal of cornflakes and milk. And I think it was, I hope I'm quoting it correctly. I believe 80% of them spiked into the prediabetic or diabetic range. So there's some foods that are probably just going to spike you out of range no matter what. And so it's, it can be a bit tricky for a clinician who's not super familiar with diabetes care and the goal ranges and gestational diabetes to give you a definitive yes or no, you do or do not have gestational diabetes. And that's more of a quandary from the medical perspective because they just want to put a diagnosis or no diagnosis. Like they want to put a definitive thing on your chart and they might not be able to do that as easily. But if you're going to be motivated and on top of it enough to monitor and make sure your sugars are within range, technically you're doing what they would do if they diagnosed you as gestational diabetes anyways, right? So I think it's a matter of like how much effort people want to put into it. Um, I think it's the proactive thing to do. And I think it's really a great learning opportunity to see how your blood sugar responds. But I also understand that not everybody wants to do that. And in that case, you have the glucola, the, you know, glucose drink that you can do instead and, and do that option. And if all says it really doesn't taste that bad, it just made me feel really sick <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> afterwards. Um, now yeah. the last thing I want to talk to you about, which I probably should have said, meant talked about earlier with um, like what to eat and all, all that fun stuff, but or your prenatal vitamins. So what should we be looking for in a prenatal vitamin? And I would also like to tap into the difference between folate and folic acid, because I know that's a huge topic that a lot of people, like it's, it's deceiving for a lot of women looking for a prenatal. Yeah. Yeah. The prenatal vitamins, the whole prenatal vitamin marketplace is really frustrating for me as, as a clinician. So with prenatal vitamins, you want to be looking for something that provides like an array of your vitamin needs and ideally also some trace mineral needs as well. 
you want to be looking for, and I say that because I want to call out without calling out by name some brands that sort of pick and choose a handful of nutrients and say that they're making up for inadequacies in the diet. No, you want like a full spectrum um, prenatal vitamin that covers your bases. You don't want them to pick and choose what they think your diet is deficient in because the thing is we don't know what you're deficient in unless you're doing a micronutrient analysis on your diet or testing your micronutrient status uh, via a blood test or something. So it's an insurance policy that goes along with a real food diet. So uh, in addition to that, I am concerned about the forms of nutrients and specifically looking at the forms of certain B vitamins to make sure that they are metabolically active. So to touch on the folate, issue. That's the main one that I'm concerned about. I also think it's worthwhile to look, especially at the vitamin B12 form that's in there. But the one that most supplements use is folic acid. And folic acid is a synthetic version of folate. Folate is vitamin B9. There are many different types of folate. There's like 150 different types found in food. But the main form of folate that's found in food is called methylfolate. And methylfolate is already metabolically active, so it doesn't need any special conversion in your body in order to do what it's supposed to do, whereas folic acid does. And there's a lot of people out there, 40 to 60% of the population, who have differences based on their genetics and their ability to utilize and activate synthetic folic acid to actually function in their body appropriately. And if you're in that 40 to 60%, you especially need to be getting methylfolate versus folic acid. So that would be the prime, the, probably the primary thing that I'm looking at on a prenatal vitamin is that. I also think it's worthwhile to look for one that has methylcobalamin instead of cyanocobalamin in terms of the vitamin B12 form. There's also other forms of B12, um, like adenosylcobalamin, and there's a couple others that would be fine, but the cyanocobalamin one is not um, as optimal. Uh, I'd also be looking at how much vitamin D it has and whether or not you're somebody who gets a lot of sun exposure or is planning to have an additional vitamin D supplement, but many of them are pretty low in vitamin D, and we have pretty strong data that you wanna aim for about 4,000 IUs of vitamin D per day just across the board um, in pregnancy. Beyond that, there's so many considerations. I guess the last one I'll throw out there is does it contain choline and how much choline does it have? We have pretty strong data now that the choline requirements in pregnancy are higher than what we previously thought they should be. They should probably be about double what they currently are set at. And so the current recommendation is about 450 milligrams per day. Most prenatals don't include any choline because it's a very bulky nutrient. It takes up a lot of space and thus you will definitely need more than a one a day. Probably will need more than a three a day in a prenatal vitamin and that freaks people out. Um, and manufacturers would rather just sell you a one a day and save the money and time on trying to market you for the choline. So I do think it's worthwhile to get one that has choline because a lot of people... I think it's 90, 90 to 94% of pregnant women are not getting enough choline in their diet. So I think that's an, an important one to look at. 
And I'll throw in one other, which is iodine. Does it have iodine? And how much iodine does it have? Iodine deficiency is very, very common, um, especially for people who don't eat much seafood, or if in addition to not eating seafood, you don't eat eggs and dairy products, you're almost guaranteed to not be getting enough iodine in your diet. And that's really, really important for your baby's brain development and also your thyroid function. So um, the needs are increased in pregnancy. They're like two, depending on which reference you're going by, it's 220 to 250 micrograms per day. A lot of supplements don't include any iodine or they put in like a teeny amount, like 20 micrograms, like, yeah, thanks. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing, but I think it's ideal to, to get the full amount from a prenatal. Wow. I have a lot to look at when I go look in my medicine cabinet right now in my prenatal. I don't recommend that you have a, unless they're coming in separate capsules, I don't recommend a prenatal that has DHA built yeah. into it because there's, there's just concern that DHA is like a very delicate omega-3 fat and it could get oxidized and thus become like rancid and unusable or even harmful if it interacts with other things in the vitamin mixture that could change its, its structure and, and, and make it, you know, less usable to your body. So I do recommend DHA on the side and not everybody needs DHA. If you're eating a minimum of about 12 ounces of seafood per week, you might be fine without a DHA supplement or a fish oil supplement, but that can be added in addition. And I think probably most people, unless you live in like a fishing community, are probably not getting 12 ounces of seafood per week. So um, I do personally think it's wise for the majority of people, yes, to look for a um, fish oil supplement. Um, at minimum, you're looking for about 300 milligrams of DHA per day. I do recommend one that also has some EPA in there, which is like it's sort of sister omega-3 fatty acid that's naturally found in all of the DHA sources in real food. So it does, they do work together. The EPA actually helps you transport the DHA across the placenta. So I recommend you just get, you know, a regular fish oil it doesn't have to be a prenatal necessarily DHA supplement. You can get a regular high quality fish oil. Just look on the back and make sure you're getting about 300 milligrams of DHA in there. And they usually break down the fatty acid breakdown for you on the label. Okay. I have to look. Cause I mean, I, I like fish, but I don't eat a lot of fish. Like I love wild, like King Alaskan King salmon, but it's hard to find quality fish and I'm not going to eat it if it's not like the, from the quality or to the standards that I, that I like. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to look that up then. A lot of fish oil, they also notice have like natural flavors in them and like additives in them that I just don't like. Like I need to find like a pure fish oil. Um, mm -hmm. Any recommendations? Definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I really like Nordic Naturals. Um, I think one of the things I like about them the most is that the the way they process their fish oil, it's you you receive it in its natural triglyceride form, which is easier to digest and has less of the like burp up issues. Um, but they also source sustainably and screen for um, toxins and contaminants and whatnot. So. They have a huge, huge range of fish oils and cod liver oils and other things on their line. So it can be kind of hard to choose. 
but just look for one, whatever one you choose, just aim for your, your dosage of DHA to be about 300 milligrams. Okay, I'm gonna look, they sell it at my local um, organic grocery store here. Oh yeah, yeah, most health food stores and Whole Foods and those kinds of places will have it.